Is war ever justified? Today I brought on my good friend Sean Doherty, and we talked about his peace campaign, his poem for peace campaign, where he wrote a little poem and sent it to all of the U.S. senators in hopes that they might take more seriously the idea of peace. Now, I wanted to express the importance of poetry in our history, as Americans, as soldiers, some of the greatest poems of American literature and British literature over the last hundred years were written by poet soldiers, by men in World War I, by men in World War II, by the, uh, the homespun kind of poetry of the American Revolution. And in fact, you know, this is very revealing the kind of things that the soldiers say about the war is critical to our understanding of why we fight and what the purpose of war is. And it's, you know, I bring up war so much in in, uh, peace talks because that's what everybody says that they want. Everybody says they want peace. There's no general who, if you asked him what he ultimately wants, wouldn't say peace. It's not like that is a silly thought that a general only wants war. And even if he does, he wouldn't say that out loud, right? Even if all that Trump wanted was war, He wouldn't say that out loud. He would say, what I ultimately want is peace, but we have to do the X, Y, and Z to achieve peace in the Middle East or peace in Africa or peace wherever he wants to go, right? Now, I wanted to read this little quote from Muhammad Ali. I'm going to say N instead of N-word because I don't feel comfortable saying that word. I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. No Viet Cong ever called me N. I am not going 10,000 miles to help murder kill, and burn other people to simply help continue the domination of white slave masters over dark people. Now, I don't agree with, you know, his sentiments about, you know, uh, certain things in that statement, but I understand what he's trying to say there. And one thing we can understand about, um, you know, poets, and, and that may not be poetry, but he is kind of was thought of as a poet soldier, is that they are reflecting the sentiments, the feelings, the ideas, the beliefs of hundreds of of thousands of millions of other less charismatic, less well-spoken, less, you know, having a high platform men as him. I'm in this conversation with Sean Doherty when we talk about peace and a lot about war, because oftentimes I think you need war to achieve peace. I do agree with that statement. But we talk about what is the purpose of war? Why do we, do we ever need war? And I bring up the Iliad. Now in the Iliad, Uh, Achilles does, you know, this is the famous Trojan War, and Achilles famously says, I'm not going to fight anymore for various reasons, which I won't get into. But he says, I withdraw from fighting. And one of the famous statements, and Achilles has some of the best speeches in Homeric poetry, one of his famous lines is, I, for my part, did not come here for the sake of the Trojan spearmen to fight against them, since to me they have done nothing. He's you know, that's the same kind of line when Muhammad Ali is echoing that statement. I don't know if he knew that he was quoting Homer. And this is an ancient idea. What is the purpose of war? Why do men die? What is, it seems paradoxical to go to war, for instance, for honor and for glory, which is a lot of what some of the uh, World War I fighters thought they were going to at the beginning is to you go on a great adventure. That's how it was pitched to them. 
And then the, the paradox of that, that this is leading to death, that you have to either achieve glory through dying or by killing, by you know, enacting more death. And so the Iliad is a great and one of my favorite pieces of literature ever to understand this idea and to kind of frame and discuss the concept of how to achieve peace, because we all want peace. Why is peace good? And what is war? And, you know, how can you uh, persuade people with poetry? That's what Sean wants to do. He wants to persuade people with poetry. And throughout our history, our poetry to this day, uh, well, maybe not as much today, but to some degree, you know, it, it has just manifested itself in music a little bit more. But our poetry has defined our reasons for fighting, why we fight, not the soldiers, the leaders, the, everyone involved. And in, uh, you know, you can see a lot in the types of poetry that people choose. You know, in the American Revolution, in some of the horn that would hold their gunpowder, they would have etched, you know, homespun poetry or proverbs about things like uh, vince out mori, or I don't know how to pronounce that, it's Latin, but, you know, conquer or die. And these guys who went off to war, these American soldiers in, in 1775, when they were fighting in the battles of Lexington and Concord, they knew why they were fighting. And they were proud of it. Even the teenagers, they had a clear vision that we will conquer or die. That's it. That was what they were going to war for because they wanted freedom. They wanted peace. In Vietnam, however, when you look at the, um, the, the types of inscriptions that were on their rifles, on their coats, on their helmets, were profoundly different from the sentiments of alienation, self-pity, anomaly. Uh, a profound despair inscribed in helmet covers and field equipment in Vietnam. I mean, there's a huge contrast. And you can tell there's a reason for this contrast because these guys didn't want to go to war. This was not something that they believed in. They were, Muhammad Ali was speaking for them. And this is why poetry is so important because it is men speaking to men. That is poetry. Whether you think it's grand poetry, like you know, or grand words, like what Muhammad Ali said, or whether you think it's you know epic poetry, like Homer's Iliad, in in the Iliad, the war that killed Achilles, which is one way to look at that war. It's not just a war of conquering Troy, but it's a war that killed the best of men, Achilles. That's what it. That's all that the Trojan War accomplished. That's one way to look at that war. And so there's all these different elements, but it's words that push people to fight. And this is true of our enemies. What words, what ideas, what concept are motivating our enemies to fight? Once you understand that, then you can have at least a beginning of a discussion of how to fight a war so that there is no more war after it, so that we can have an actual peace, not a so-called pretend peace. So that's what we're going to talk about. Now, the poem that I'm going to read is a very harrowing poem. It's a very sad poem, and it's a tragic poem, and it's a compelling poem. It's a poem that has no title. It's by a man by the name of Patrick Shaw Stewart, where he is on R and R from the um, from World War One, and he is going or he is engaged in the Battle of Gallipoli, which was a battle that the Allies lost. Now, of course, he doesn't know this on R&R. He doesn't, I mean, this is the thing about poetry, or excuse me, this is the thing about war, is that when you go into war, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't know for certain. 
if you're going to die. And many soldiers need to go in with some sliver of, of hope. And it's when they lose hope that it becomes very tragic. Now, in this poem, he talks, and I'll read it in a second, but he talks a lot about, and it's a very short poem, but he talks about the hell of war. He talks about the inanities of war. And he conjures up images of Achilles. He conjures up images of um, the Iliad. And he conjures up the, the Aegean Sea, which is where they're fighting. The Battle of Gallipoli is, is he's fighting Turkish uh, soldiers who will defeat the British uh, military at this point. They're trying to gain control of the, uh, you know, the, the sea in that area so that they can have a be- their navy can have a better ability to you know, go through there and, and defeat their enemies. Uh, this is, he calls it the Dardanelles, which is what it was called in World War I. And uh, during the ancient Greek time, it was called the Hellespont. And it was all, it's always been a very important, you know, part of the world because it, you can, if you look at a map, it's much easier to traverse that region of the world if you have access or control over the Dardanelles or the, the Hellespont. The last two stanzas are very important. And I wanted to really quickly read them now, and then I'll read the whole poem in a second. But just so you can get an idea for what's going on, because Patrick Shaw is a soldier in World War I. And he's going to die. Now, he doesn't know he's going to die, but he can feel it. If you go to war, you have a sense that there's a chance. And this is World War I. So he's starting to see, and, and many of the other British soldiers and, and the other soldiers in general are starting to see that death is a real possibility. So here's the last two lines. Again, he's talking to Achilles. One background piece you need to know is in the story of the Iliad, there is this period in the uh, middle part of the book where Achilles, little to middle to late part of the book where Achilles finally re-enters the war, the Trojan War. Remember, this is a war that's been going on for 10 years. Achilles has been fighting, but he stops fighting at the beginning of the Iliad because of various reasons that we, you know, isn't really relevant right now. And he stops fighting and he says, I'm not going to fight anymore. And, you know, I read you that little quote about um, the spearman never did anything to me. But then Achilles' best friend, his lover even, his counterpart, Patroclus, dies, is killed in battle. And Achilles goes mad. He runs naked into the war, into a ditch, a trench that the Greeks in the Trojan War have uh, dug to protect their ships. Because if the, um, you know, if you, again, they're at the sea and then you have Troy, uh, which is, you know, in the, it's the Turkish area now. But if you look at a map of, you can Google ancient Greece and look at a map of where Troy would sit. And you could see that there's this position that the Greeks would want to protect. They, they do not want the Tro- Trojans getting that far in field because that would really destroy them. And so they dug this trench and Achilles is told by a god that, you know, uh, the messenger god Iris to go out and run and to stand at this trench and just stand there and let the Trojans see you. Because up to this point, the Trojans have been resurging in the war. They've been winning. And this is part of what's going on in the the you know, Iliad and what Homer has is talking about. Um, you know, everybody who reads the, the Iliad knows that the Trojans are going to lose, but Homer is a genius at still building the intensity and, you know, like who's going to die specifically and, and things of that nature in his epic poem, which is one of the best pieces of literature in the history of the world. And there's a reason for it. And this is one of the scenes 
that's very important is Achilles is told by Iris to just go out there. He's basically Achilles has no armor because Patroclus ha- wore his armor in the battle, and now Hector, his enemy, has uh, Achilles' armor. So he has no armor. He's naked. And he ru- he's told to run out to this trench and just let the Trojans see him. And here's like a quick little paragraph from the Iliad to kind of see that. And Trojans hearing the brazen voice of Aikides, all their spirits quaked. Even sleek-maned horses, sensing death in the wind, slewed their chariots round, and charioteers were struck dumb when they saw that fire, relentless, terrible, burst from proud-hearted Achilles' head, blazing as fiery-eyed Athena fueled the flames. Now, in general, the image of this section, which this doesn't quite capture, but it does a little bit, uh, Athena, I believe it's Athena, has wrapped Achilles in a cloud. He ru- and puts him, you know, puts basically that a cloud on fire. And then Achilles goes to this trench, you know, like a little bit above the trench on a hill, and he starts to scream, just shouting and screaming. And Athena backs his scream up by screaming as well. So he has this unearthly screech, this screech of death that the Trojans see, and they shiver. And they run away by a naked Achilles. And the imagery is this, he's on fire, the sun lifts behind, you know, uh, uh, drifts behind him, and the sun is setting behind him. And you can imagine this, you know, he's crowned by flame. And this scene has been taken by literature, uh, by poets a lot. And one of the reasons it's taken by poetry so much is because as a warrior, you would want uh, you know, an Achilles to return to battle and scare your enemy. That's what you want. Now, there's other things going on here. Here's the last two stanzas of the poem by Shaw. Was it so hard, Achilles, so very hard to die? Thou knowest, and I know not, so much the happier I. I will go back this morning from Imbros over the sea. Stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped, and shout for me. Thou knew so he says, Thou knewest and I know not, so much the happier I. One of the dilemmas in the Iliad is that Achilles, unlike any other soldier in the history of the world, and you know, very explicitly discussed in the Iliad itself, he knew his two fates. No soldier knows for sure. There's always a kernel of doubt for any, you know, sound minded soldier that maybe he will get out of here alive. And that's the hope, at least, of most soldiers. Uh, Vietnam was a very interesting difference, you know, and, and, and this started to happen in World War I and World War II, where they started to think, if I'm going to war, I'm dead, which is a very tragic and horrible position to be in, of course. But uh, Achilles knows that he has two fates. If he goes to war, he will be remembered forever. He will have glory and honor forever. His name will echo throughout all eternity. And it's true. Right. The alternative is he can go home and lead a happy life. And he knows that he will lead a happy life. He knows that he will have kids with a beautiful woman that he will love. They will have his kids will have kids and their kids will have kids. But his name will fade over time. So those are his two choices. And he knows that's the big thing. Nobody really knows these types of things. But Achilles is told by a God. So he knows for certain his two fates, his two choices. He will die. And what Shaw is saying, was it so hard, Achilles, so very hard to die? Thou knewest, and I know not, so much the happier I. 
So he, the fact that he doesn't know, that Shaw doesn't know that he's going to die, and, and Shaw does die in reality. So he doesn't know, and he's happier because he at least has a kernel that he might survive. Now, there's, there's a little bit more to the poem, but I won't go into all of it. Sean and I are going to talk a lot about, we're going to talk a lot about war and peace and what's going on with the craziness about our Middle East and our foreign policy in general. We're going to talk about what is the aim of war? How do you achieve peace? Can poetry help you achieve peace and things of that nature? But I wanted to, before I get into that, uh, before I read the poem and before I bring Sean on for the converse with verse section, I wanted to, to end with this last part of of Shaw's poem, this last stanza, where he says, I will go back this morning from Imbros over the sea, stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped, and shout for me. As a soldier, he wants Achilles to fight for him because he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to go to war. War is hell. We shouldn't want war. We should want war to be over as quickly and quickly as possible. And Shaw is expressing this in poetic terms, and he's begging Achilles, stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped, and shout for me. Because when Achilles stands in the trench, he shouts, and the enemy runs away. Well, isn't that what you would want to happen if you were in war? Wouldn't you want to go to war, go to the Gallipoli in 1915 or World War I, and have this you know, godlike creature behind you shouting a screech of, of hell and heaven to combine together and, and scare your enemies away from a moral power? That's what Shaw wants. That's what he hopes for, but he doesn't get it. And you can't control something like that. And that's the tragedy of war. So I hope you enjoy this poem. We're going to go into the lines a little bit with Sean and I, but I think Sean and I are really going to go off on, uh, he's a libertarian, so he has a, a specific view, and we kind of talk about that, and we're going to talk a lot about the libertarian view, about the role of poetry, and about war and peace. So stick around for the poem, and for my friend Sean Doherty. I saw a man this morning who did not wish to die. I ask and cannot answer if otherwise wish I. Fair broke the day this morning against the Dardanelles. The breeze blew soft. The morn's cheeks were cold as cold seashells. But other shells are waiting across the Aegean Sea. Shrapnel and high explosive Shells and hells for me. O hells of ships and cities, hell of men like me, fatal second Helen, why must I follow thee? Achilles came to Troyland, and I to Chersonese. He turned from wrath to battle, and I from three days' peace. Was it so hard, Achilles, so very hard to die? Thou knewest, and I know not, so much the happier I. I will go back this morning from Imbros over the sea. Stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped, and shout for me.
Hey, Sean, thanks again for being on the show, man. Hey, Kirk, thanks for welcoming me back. I guess I was uh, okay in terms of audience standards for your podcast. You're a killer. That All right. cookie thief. So we go from <laughs> cookie thief to war. I already read the poem. People know a little bit about it. I thought we would jump in because I know we have a little bit of a truncated time period based on my other podcasts that have been running a little long. But um, we're going to talk about your peace poem, what I think peace is, how to achieve it, what are the, out, you know, as much as possible about like what war is. But I really want to focus on this poem that by Patrick Shaw Stewart, which was you know, um, a guy, I don't know if you know the background. Do you know the background of this poem? No, not really. Yeah. So Patrick Shaw Stewart was a guy who fought in World War One, a British soldier. And there were a lot of British sol- uh, soldiers during that time who wrote beautiful poetry. And there's, you know, collections of their poetry uh, from World okay. War One and World War Two. But this, this guy fought at uh, the Battle of Gallipoli in 1915. And on leave during R and R, three days R and R that he had, he wrote this poem, and the the poem and what he was um, you know referring to. We'll talk a little bit about, but basically, I think the background kind of helps that Gallipoli and or the Dardanelles, or is near the Dardanelles, or what uh, used to be called in ancient times the Hellespont, and this was a very big and important battle and loss that the allies had during world war one. And, you know, we'll go through the imagery and some of the stuff he's talking about, but he's talking about, you know, death and the Iliad and, you know, the famous last two lines stand in the trench, Achilles flame capped and shout for me. And there is a very powerful um, image that he's drawing from my favorite book, which is why I chose uh, this poem to go with your peace poem uh, about the Iliad, which is, often thought to be about war, but is more about death and the paradox of being a human and the paradox of, you know, glory and honor and war, but it has to happen when you die or when you kill people. So that, that's a lot to take in there. And I think the first thing I just want to admit is kind of a, a poetry novice is that I was unaware that the last two lines related back to the Iliad. And that's where I feel... If we just discuss poetry, continuing our cookie thief conversation, I'm a little bit uh, intimidated by poems where I would – I read this one. I thought it was very interesting, but not knowing those different connections, having, uh, I guess, um, that shortcoming in my own literary background, it's harder for me to want to dive deeper into poems. But then when I go to the Peace Park in Nagasaki where I was last week and I read a poem from the sculptor where it doesn't have those literary um, uh, references, then I feel I can take that sort of – that poetry on a much easier basis. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that um, part of the premise of the show is that you don't need to have read poetry, and that's true even of this. So even of this poem, if you don't have the knowledge that I have, which I Googled, by the way, I don't, I'm not an expert on <laughs> everything that ever was written. I mean, even people who know a lot about poetry have to research it somehow. And now we luckily can easily just look it up. That's sure, one thing. Sure. That's one thing that's really powerful. And 
part of it is that there's so many poems that people don't know about. Your peace poem is one. Like, there's people who wrote poetry, you know, on the eve of civil war that go off. So Patrick Shaw Stewart died. So this poem is more powerful, I think, even though it's sad that he died because he died, though. Because it goes, I saw, it starts, I saw a man this morning who did not wish to die. I ask and cannot answer if other eyes wish I. Because part of what we're talking about when we talk about peace, part of what we talk about when we talk about war is why people fight. Like, why should they fight? Why, what is worth dying for? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this poem is about. But it, there's, there's more to it, of course. To address what you're talking about, I wholeheartedly agree the prob- you know, that there seems to be this kind of pretentiousness. But you know, I challenge that that's not as accurate as you think. Like, There's a lot in this poem in and of itself. And that if you like a poem, then you should look into it. So that's always my, my model. Do you like the sound of it? Do you like the images? Does it just strike you in any way at all? Even like emotionally, even for a fleeting second. If it does, then go ahead and look into it a little bit. And that, that way you can dive into you know, the kind of the meaning. You can think about it for yourself and things of that nature. So that's kind of what my role is in, in this case, is kind of to, to point out those different meanings if I know them. But... I didn't know the, that meaning you're talking about until I learned it. <laughs> okay, so okay. It's it's not, you know, like I think that's a, a perception, but it's it's just like anything else. This is why poetry is such a great training ground for stuff like this because when you're living your life, it's the same thing. Like someone tells you something you don't know, so you look it up if you're interested. If you're not, you just let it go. And that's a good takeaway for me there because I Google – a whole plethora of different things throughout my day that I hear or that I read or that I saw on television. But then when it comes to poetry, for some reason, I don't apply that. So I can certainly kick myself into gear and say, okay, when I do read a poem, I should be Googling those things that I don't know just to kind of connect it on my own. Well, I, you know, I want to get into your peace poem, but I'll say that the reason you do that is that I did the same thing, right? You know, you see a poem like, when you look at it this way, when you walk into a um, a theater, not a movie theater, like a live theater production, right? You're automatically emotionally attuned to certain differences in, than that, than in a movie theater, than in uh, real life, right? Like you know the people are acting, mm. so they die. It's not really dead. You know yeah. all the things are. There's a certain like connotation, context of this whole, you know, perspective of when you walk into a theater. And it's the same thing the second, you know, so there's a whole slew of emotions that go over you, good and bad, right? Like you hate theater, like, oh, your girlfriend's dragging you to a stupid theater, blah, blah, blah. Or you get, uh, in the, or the same thing happens with poetry, where you see the poetry, it's, it's designed in a certain way, you know, it's shaped in a certain way, there's a lot of white space, there's, you know, a couple words per line, it's, it's in these weird stanzas, sometimes the, the language is a little bit different. So you look at it and you automatically think, you, your mind automatically shuts down, Right. And part of that, and part of what I'm fighting against in this po- uh, podcast, generally poems for people who hate poetry, is that the reason that happened is because of education. Education fucked you over because poetry is the most human of all activities. I mean, there's a reason why children love rhymes. We all love rhymes as kids, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy, like that kind of thing we love, Right. And, uh, you know, that it's very natural to us to love those types of things. So my, my point is that 
we've lost a part of our soul due to education beating us, beating it out of us because the second we see it, we get turned off like that. That's so that's my little rant on that. Um, but I appreciate you saying that. I don't think you're wrong. I just think that uh, we all feel that way. And I really am trying to fight against that. I really hope people will, will try to read something and not think, well, I don't understand it. So I don't know anything about poetry. So fuck it. Mm-hmm. Well, you're railing against public education systems and you're all for Googling things on our own. So I'm sure that people will hear your call and, and take it up. So let's talk you're about here. your call. Okay. Your peace call. Yeah, this was, uh, as I mentioned in the last, well, my last, uh, last time I joined you here on the podcast, I started this campaign for peace, which is really just, I feel a little strange to call it a campaign. It's nothing more than just a campaign of one and something that I wanted to do on my own because I felt that in our political climate in the U.S., um, everyone has a justification for war and why we should pursue it in this country and why we should engage with that enemy. And I don't see, at least in the sources that I review, any justifications for peace. Nobody is putting out a message of why we should be working for it or maybe even what it would look like. So I wrote a peace poem and sent it out to 100 U.S. senators, all the senators, because that was, the for me, the easiest list to cross off and say, okay, I've at least contacted one of the uh, governing bodies that has direct responsibility and power over determining war. And um, I haven't received any replies from them yet, but in a way I hope that they picked it up, they looked at it a bit, and they thought, at least in that day, in that moment, there is, uh, there is something I could be working for other than violence. So you're saying people advocate for war but they don't advocate for peace. I feel that peace is kind of a given and a... Um, peace is a given? It, 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 no, no it's, it's a given end goal that everyone will say, of course we need peace and we would want to work towards peace, but then it's always followed by a but. It's never the um, it's never the end goal, I guess, in a way that they say, if we can have this, but we must have that first, and that would always be violence or war of some kind. Does that make sense? So you're saying that they only half-heartedly want peace. That really maybe it's like paying lip service to it. So the the question is though, um, well, what is peace to you? I think that's like it sounds like a simple answer, but I think it's much more complex, and I think it's part of the reason why there's always a but. Mm-hmm. It's like I want. Well, and let me let me let you talk about it first, and I'll say my side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think peace is certainly an absence of violence. It's a collaborative approach to working together with uh, on an individual level with our neighbors and with a, on a global level with other countries. We do that to some extent with our neighbors, say Canada, Mexico, but we find lots of other countries where instead of uh, engaging with them in discussions, we're engaging with them with bombs, with guns, with boots on the ground. And that to me 
seems to be getting more attention in the media, seems to be growing more in the direction of violence and less in the direction of cooperation, discussion, friendship, peace. Well, so, but I mean, you brought up the idea of Canada. I mean, (laughs) Canada doesn't kill us. So don't you think there's a difference like that when we throw in a peace, like I would love to have peace in the Middle East, but but only if they stop blowing themselves up and throwing themselves into our buildings with bombs strapped to their chest. Like how, how do you reconcile that issue? Because that seems like, you know, um, um, I don't even know the word. Like it seems like naivety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a two-way street to be sure. Um, and also perhaps a little bit of a chicken and an egg question. Um, we don't have to go back and to look at, you know, the start of any of the particular wars that we've been engaged in, but it should be noted that we've also been engaged in Afghanistan. That's the longest war in U.S. history. Uh, but if That's we can crazy. look at... I agree. That's nuts. Yes. Yeah. We're on that same page there. That's absolutely and then if, insane. If, and if we, if you will follow or agree with this chicken and the egg problem about, you know, what, what comes first, the terrorist or the reason for their act of terrorism. Yeah, so, okay, so please go down that line because this is one that libertarians always go down and it's, uh-huh. and it's just absolutely ahistorical, completely. Mm. So, mm. But I'd like to hear what you have to say on mm. this common line. I mean, this is a common argument I hear among libertarians. Um, mm. And I'm going to recommend a book called Nothing Less Than Victory, by John mm-hmm. David Lewis, very mm-hmm. good book. But there's a, I mean, there's a lot about this um, written about what's going on in, in the Middle East. And you know, if you want to read, like there's there's a book uh, by Bernard Lewis called What Went Wrong about the Middle East. But I, I think okay. this kind of blaming the victim that that you know we caused this by going over there and drilling for oil, or we caused it by whatever, you know, um, I. I <laughs> That to me is just such a blase way of looking at the history of our uh, well, of our time there. Well, so let me guide the conversation in a bit different direction then, because I don't want to go back to what started the the terrorism that led to our engagement in the Middle East. I don't want to look at that in particular, and to return to um, to you know Osama bin Laden, a return to anything leading up to those events and get into a historical discussion. But I want to say, just looking in the last few years as a thought exercise, um, America, our great military, dropped 26,000 bombs last year in 2016. That was across Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Somalia. Uh, the U.S. has been expanding its military presence in Africa. So if they're – and I think the count is like they, we have U.S. troops in 33 different countries in Africa on the mission of you know routing out Islamic terrorism. Okay, But if we can continue this thought exercise and say with 70 bombs being dropped per day last year – how how can we look at that and not think that there would be some potential blowback coming up in the next five years, in the next 10 years, when someone 
you were my age right now in one of those seven countries that was just being bombed uh, altogether 70 times a day, when their brother, their younger sister, their parents are blown to pieces and they know where that bomb originated from, they grow up in situations where they maybe don't have education, where their economy is not as developed as ours, do you think that then they would have the same kind of victim mindset that leads libertarians along this line of argument? Or they should grow up and study the Constitution and engage in proactive trade with us and then let bygones see, be guided that, bygones? That's where the problem comes into play. So I do not agree with all of our engagements everywhere over the world. I'm not, I don't think we should be in Africa. I don't think we should be in Syria. I think there's so many places we're in that it's, um, part of it is I, you know, I agree with this idea that we don't have a proper outcome for the war. We don't have, a, we don't even have an, an an idea of what the end or the objective of a war is. So that's the fundamental problem. But no, we should not be in those places. But here's the big. I mean, if you want to put it in, in the world that you're building, of this, you know, we're in 33 worlds or 33 countries. We're dropping 26,000 bombs. We're doing this and that. The the question should be, you know, that you're implying that I think is the naivete part is that if we were to pull out all of them, all of a sudden, just say, you know what, we're pulling out, starting, you know, we're going to phase out our soldiers over the next, uh, in 2018, by the end of 2018, we'll have no soldiers anywhere in the world. We're going to position them strategically around the United States to protect us as much as possible, you know, to have an America first policy, which you know, Trump always talks about, but never really delivers on. But, you know, that that's kind of the idea that we're going to have and we're going to pull out. We're not going to bomb these guys. You guys can deal with yourselves, right? Like in Egypt, ISIS just killed 350 people, right? They killed themselves. They kill themselves all the time. So we just say, you know what? Go do that. That's, that's on you. We're not going to protect you. We're not going to help you. We're not going to support you. You're on your own. And we do that. So your assumption is that they're somehow going to read the fucking constitution? Where do you get that from? Like what evidence do you have of that? That that's no. the naivety that they're going to educate themselves, that they're going to be some kind of you know la di da type of a, a campaign that's going to then start trading with us rationally. No, no, that's not that. My, that's my point. But in reverse is what I'm saying is we have seven bombs being tor- or seven countries being torn apart by bombs right now, and then I think to your point you were saying like okay. Libertarians like to say, um, like to be too much. Uh, can you say that point again about the libertarians that you disagreed with about how we are citing too much on the victim side? Are we put no the the strain know, that libertarians, especially anarcho capitalists, strain if you can even call them libertarians. But the libertarian argument tends to be overall that we cause blowback. And okay, the so let me take it from that actions. But you so, first, you need to address what I asked you though. Like, do you really think that if we pulled out, this is a simple yes or no question, that if we pulled out, they would start like reading the Constitution and becoming a sane? No, that's not what I stated, though. What my statement was, if the libertarians are right that blowback is real, that means that those 26,000 bombs last year are going to lead to potential enemies in the future. And what I'm saying is, on the other hand, we would buy be naive to think that in those seven countries where the economy is super depressed because of these bombings, that they would somehow on their own start to 
start to discover Western ways and the benefits of free trade and the benefits of limited government and things like this, and that they would somehow come to want to engage with us in a way that we would embrace. But instead, because they are being bombed, they are more likely, without so much economic opportunity in their country, with those bombs falling around them, they're much more likely to engage in violence and engage in terrorist acts later on because of their limited choices. So I'm not saying they're somehow going to find... What would uh, happen if we pulled out? Of course, you know, in, a, in certain instances where we already have such a high presence and maybe part of the stability of the country depends on the U.S. involvement there, it won't be pretty. I'm not saying it's going to be uh, daisies springing out of the ground and poppies seed and the poppy fields in Afghanistan. They're not going to become daisies or something right away. But does that mean we should stay? I don't think so. But that's not what I'm saying. We're, we're trying to get to the idea of what's going to happen in these countries um, if we were to pull out or, or even if we were to take a historical, you know, what if type thing, like what if uh, we just never were in any of these places and we never, uh, you know, went there at all. I mean, do you think that somehow they would just become this rational culture? Uh, but are you saying then by that statement that the culture is not rational? Yeah. I, are you kidding? Like, how, explain to me how they're rational. Well, like, not everyone in the culture is strapping bombs to themselves. This is not a cultural phenomenon. This is a select group that is following radical ideology. Well, but do you think radical ideology is born in a vacuum? No, okay, so the libertarian movement, I know some in the libertarian movement who are supporting the takeover of federal lands by, um, what was the name of the group? The Bundy Group? Is that the correct name that I'm saying? I do not know about this. Let me see if I can look it up. So the point is, though, that... Okay, Ammon Ammon Bundy's was, uh, they initiated a coup over federal land ownership in the U.S. last year uh, in Oregon. So I have many libertarian friends who supported this and said, okay, this is good, this is American citizens standing for their rights and standing for private property, et cetera, et cetera. It led to one of the uh, protesters being shot dead by law enforcement agencies. Now, does that mean that all libertarians support this kind of ideology? because they also are for limited government and for private property? Does that mean that all libertarians are standing with their guns along federal lands to protest and take back the land? No, this is a very select group within an ideology, and it does not mean that the whole culture or the ideology itself has some kind of fundamental issue and that is you know, radical. Uh, yeah, so one... We shouldn't go down the whole libertarian strain. My overall criticism of libertarianism is that they don't really stand for anything. Like they stand, the, you know, in a broad sense, they have a very general idea that, you know, we want less government. But there tends to be, like you're saying, these factions, uh, like there's anarcho-capitalists who consider themselves this kind of libertarianism. But that's, that's neither here nor there in the question we're trying to talk about, about peace. Because first off, let's be clear that I want peace too. But I don't want to, you know, uh, make it sound like I'm for war or for, you know, death or for killing civilians. That's not what I want. What I want is actual peace. I want the reality of peace. End of, you know, period. 
Now, what you're saying is that um, there's some minor uh, strain within uh, the Middle East that, you know, is for radical Islam, radical, uh, you know, totalitarian Islam, and they want, you know, and they're they're the problem, and they're going around killing people, but that neglects the complete and total reality and history of Islam in the Middle East, how the Middle Easterns have governed themselves, and the way to go to war with a country like that or countries like that, and what what it means to be a totalitarian type of a uh, dictatorship, which is what or theology, which is what they want. This is what Iran has, and this is what they want across the entire Middle East. And this is why you have to think more broadly and and more um, specifically as well. I shouldn't say broadly, like more concretely about what's going on in the Middle East. Now, I'm not an, I'm not trying to claim to be an, an expert in the Middle East, and this is always a contentious argument, of course. And Should I, we we stop there for two things? Because sure. first one, I want to just clarify. Uh, I know the discussion is not surrounding libertarianism, but for sure, one thing libertarians will say is that they do stand besides limited government, on an axiom, a principle of non-aggression. And the non-aggression principle means that I cannot cause for uh, harm, I cannot cause harm to you, you cannot cause harm to me, a country cannot cause harm to another, etc., etc. So uh, by this, I hope you agree that is a good measure of peace, that if there's no aggression, then we would have peace. Well, and I wouldn't liberty- agree. That's that's what I would I would like peace I, through aggression. I would yeah. No, in in the history of the world, the only time that peace has ever followed in reality is when there was intense destruction of an enemy to the point where the enemy said, "Okay, you win." And the you know, where they completely surrender. This happened in World War II. This happened, you know, when we dropped the bombs on uh, Japan, they they were as a religious theocracy as Iran and many of the places in the Middle East. Like they practice a completely insane, like irrational, like this is not rational. They thought the emperor was a god. And there are people that were going, you know, there, there's all these stories of, of building, a, a, you know, school goes on fire and a teacher runs into the building to get a fucking picture of the emperor because they thought he was a god and she burned half her face off because of that. Not for kids, for a picture. You know, there's so many stories of things like that of how irrational they are, not life-respecting of their own people because this theocracy, like the idea of a church and state being married, that's the biggest danger and that's the problem we're facing in the Middle East. And if we pull out what tends to happen, like what happened in Iraq, like we fought this war in Iraq, we uh, top of this dictator, but what we didn't realize was that this dictator was actually kind of holding the the place together against these more religious strains. Like Saddam Hussein was a horrible bastard, but he was secular, and he didn't want these. Um, you know, I think I think he was. I always get these mixed up. I believe he was a Sunni, but more secular. And now it's but Iraq was always a Shiite, or it's, it's uh, reverse. And the, the problem is now you're getting ISIS and all these different places, you know, taking over and starting to build up their arms in these uh, foreign places. So my point is that I want peace. You said, hey, you know, you just now said I don't want um, or that that libertarian is about non-aggression. But the problem is that when you're punched in the face or someone shoots your family or throws 
you know, uh, flies planes into your buildings or holds your embassy hostage in 1979, that you can't just sit around and wait for them to do it again and again and again and again, as they did. You have to do something about it. And the question then becomes, how do you end aggression permanently? Well, so the uh, libertarian principle, I mentioned this axiom, follows that you can defend yourself, you can protect your private property, your right to life, if harm is brought to you. If someone punches you in the face, you have recourse. Well, that's my claim. Uh, so, yeah. so that's what I'm saying happened. And now mm-hmm. the question is, how do we achieve peace? Right? How do we achieve what you want in your peace poem? Um, you know, peace, the people support it, the leaders decide it. I agree with that. You know, peace, if, it, if this is your poem, if leaders deny it, the innocent absorb the cost. I, I agree with that. I agree with what you're say, saying, peace, a noble notion, an ideal goal, yet so rarely invoked. But the question is, how do you actually accomplish that? Well, right. let me ask you this, because our, I think our conversation about peace so far has more been about war. Well, and yeah, I feel I agree. <laughs> and then they're interlinked, so it's not that we've gone adrift, but for sure, um, this is what I view as being the main uh, discourse in the media, the main discourse in Washington. And even now you said, well, according to the historical perspective, any time of peace follows from a time of war. And you no, gave no, no, the no, example no, no. of not, World War II no, ending. Not any time. And a decisive okay powerful um, exertion of one country's will over another. So World War II, like, so it has to be clear to all civilians and anybody who wants to engage in war, because what you need to crush is the will to war, because war is not just fought by armies or tacticians of terrorists. It's fought by a will. So it's not just these terrorists who are blowing themselves up. It's all the people who are paying them. It's all the people who support them morally. It's all the people who build or, you know, help send them food when they're trapped. Like that's, it's the will to keep, you know, encouraging the sons that this is a good thing. Like in the Middle East, in some of these countries like Syria, you go in there posters on the walls of buildings of men who blew themselves up because they're fucking heroes to non-combatants. That's what needs to be destroyed. So we have as I mentioned, been focused mostly on the discussion of war and you're you're providing justifications for different points and different instances of war. The question I want to ask you, when is peace justified or how would you justify peace? We've talked about why war can be justified, but if I pose that question to you, do you have an answer? How can peace or when is peace justified? Well, peace is justified all the time. That is the status we should try to strive for. But the thing you have to take into consideration is the reality of other people and the reality of the universe and like accepting the facts of reality. And part of what that means is accepting the fact that there are people who want to cut your head off. And if you want peace, you can't, you know, you know, there is a sense where a dead man has peace, right? Where he's, he's rest in peace. Sure. But I don't want to be dead, so I want to be alive. I want you to be alive. I want my friends to be alive. I want my family to be alive. I want us to have peace. But if there are people preaching death to the devil America, 
and that they want, and they're, they're not only saying this, like if it was some pipsqueak, well, they are pipsqueaks, but if it was some, you know, just bizarre guy saying death to America, but he, nobody ever took any action based on that ideology, then that, you know, whatever, just somebody who hates on America. A lot of people hate on America. That's fine. You know, there are people in France who say death, you know, to hell with America. I wish they would all die, but they don't mean it. And they don't, they wouldn't actually blow themselves up or other people. The problem is when you have an ideology matched with action. So to answer your question, always peace. And peace can only exist then when we snuff out ideology that are opposed to our way of life, our existence. Well, so you said two different things when, (laughs) you know, when, uh, when someone wants to kill you and you said this yourself, you should defend yourself. Right. Right. That's what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. you know, defend yourself. Now, you know, um, for the next part of what we're talking about, I think what is helpful and what we probably agree on are the bad, irrational wars that America engages on. Like, there is a serious question of why were we in Africa? Why is it spreading like the, you know, like the more we fight, like you're saying, it seems like the the problem is spreading versus, um, you know, being pushed back, which is why libertarians have all this fodder for argument that, well, if you bomb somebody, something bad's going to happen. Like, I get that. Like, it is happening. The way you're saying it is true. That, you know, you bomb something and then you get, now we're fighting in Africa? Like, what? And now we're growing in Africa? Now we're, you know, we're fighting in all of these places all over the world? And so there is, and this poem um, by uh, Shaw is kind of about that. Because what he's kind of, what he's trying to say, and he's talking about the hell of war. Right, like how terrible war is, um, you know. He says of hell of, sh- oh hell of ships and cities, hell of men like me, fatal second Helen. Why must I follow thee? And the idea, excuse me, the idea here is that um, he's following this irrational war, just like the Trojan War, which you may not know this, but the the Trojan War was supposedly started, um, or was started in the the Homer's Iliad. Uh, because of the abduction of Helen by Paris. Paris, you know, and if you saw the movie Troy with um, um, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, that? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, you know, Paris captures Helen, takes her back to Troy, and then all the Greeks come up in arms and go fight this, what is in the Iliad, a 10-year war. And it's this brutal war. So this is from, this poem is from the soldier's perspective. And I think it's helpful to have the soldier's perspe- perspective to a lot of this because he's the one who has to actually has to fight this. And I think you kind of mentioned that in your poem too, right? You know, the, uh, what does it say? I, I don't remember what it's, it's somewhere in here is something about how it's the people who have to actually fight the war. Right. And that's, what's happening here. And he's questioning, well, this in world war one seemed like a silly war. And to some degree it was, I think like it was an atrocious loss of millions of lives and, um, you know, all wars are an atrocious loss of life. And that I definitely agree mm-hmm. with. There's a book I really like um, by Caroline Alexander called The War That, that Killed Achilles. And the idea was that what was really going on with the Iliad or one way of looking at it was that you have this truly great man, Achilles, who was, you know, not only, he was actually a poet as well. He was a beautiful singer. He was, you know, powerful. He was strong. He was smart. 
Um, not as witty as Odysseus or anything, but this was, you know, the best of men in this time. And Iliad is simply the war that killed him. That's really all. It just took us, it took Achilles away from all of us and from the rest of history is one way to look at the war. Okay. So, you know, but this idea that we have um, this irrational war going on, fatal second Helen, why must I follow thee? You know, in this second war, this guy is in this battle. So this is an interesting, for me, I don't know about you, perspective on the peace problem that we're both skirting around or talking about, but not directly, or you are and I'm not, whatever. That you have these guys who have to fight this war. So nobody talks, or very few people talk enough about the, uh, especially people who want war, and and how to and talk about how to fight war, like like myself. Like very few people focus on the reality of the soldiers as um, having to deal with this thing that we send them to. I hear you. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to one point really quick, if you if you'll permit me, because sure, whatever you want. I, I would. I think you could give me some good feedback on this campaign in general, which is that okay. So my thesis for the campaign is that not enough people are focused on actually justifying peace, and that just as our discussion has kind of um, transitioned into an explanation of when there should be war, and then okay, well, I counter it and say actually this war. Why do we do that war, or this or that? And then we both move away from the topic of peace. And you've even used the word a few times, naive or naivety, for pushing for peace as it stands. But, in my view then, the more that we say peace is naive, and the more we try to justify the instances where war is necessary in order to pursue peace, the further we move away from any chance of actually peace in itself. So what would be a more successful approach or what could I do more effectively to actually then get to that root of whether it's a poem like this where it's talking about the soldier's experience but the root of actual peace in a sense that it's not naive but it is something that we should be working towards. Well, I mean, in any persuasion, you need to always consider the person you're trying to persuade, right? So part of that is thinking about how does people how would people read this poem who are dealing with the realities who have studied the war the history of the middle east you know have read these books like what went wrong the arab mind who stu- you know studied all these different books um you know the the 911 commission report that have all this reality they 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 know for instance about the reality of saudi arabia bankrolling so many terrorist um mosques that mosques that spread terror, these there's so many in the royal family and out of the royal family who are funneling actual funds to people who preach war against America and who preach uh, jihad and that actually arm young men to go blow themselves up or to kill people in ISIS. You know, so so you have to address the reality because what happens is if you just say, "I want peace," well. Nobody is against peace. Even people who are the most adamant warmongers aren't against peace, and it is a straw man to assume that they are. I want peace. But you have to address the reality of the situation. Now, how do you address this, the reality of the situation? If you really want peace, then you have to think, well, we've, we've, we're a, a species that likes war to some degree, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So we've been warring as a as a species forever. Like it's part of who we are, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So the question is, why haven't you gone more into history to learn where these things have changed? Because it's not like this is the first time this kind of war has even been fought. It's not. It's a, we've mm-hmm. done it. We've we've done everything under the sun, you know, so to speak, when it comes to war. And it's one of the reasons why um, the Iliad and other classic literature was used in poetry by um, British British soldiers in World War One and Two so much. Because this is not the first time this kind of thing has happened. It's not the first time people have experienced it. And nobody wants, no rational person wants to experience war. So mm-hmm. my point is that if you want to address this, you really need to address the facts. And you need to, you know, come across as someone who's actually trying to, you know, be rational about it and either be in the war, you know, or, you know, like another thing of peace campaign, this is why I bring up, this Achilles in the Trenches, um, this, this poem by Shaw, because one argument is our, for peace is our soldiers are dying and they're being mistreated. So that's my point. Like, all I'm saying is nobody's against peace and maybe this is a cool poem and a cool little campaign, but if you want actual action, why would people just say, okay, well, there's peace. We need to have more peace, so let's just withdraw all the men because that's somehow going to achieve that. You know what I'm saying? Mm. No, I mean, um, Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned that one. Yeah, that's uh, they do fund quite a lot of terrorist activities, and yet our government continues to keep them close as an ally for that region of the world. So, Well, we agree on uh, that. That's a problem. Yes. Mm-hmm. So mentioning some of the facts and trying to take this more rational approach in the campaign by itself would be kind of like, I think, a straw man because they're either going to not acknowledge that point or it's too on its face well, politically incorrect to bring up, if I can say. Well, you're saying... What way? I'm I'm a little confused. What's politically incorrect to bring up? Uh, you know, if, if in my poem I included, dear senators, why are we working so closely with Saudi Arabia when at the same time they're funding terrorists who potentially threaten us? Are they? Because they now the senator has to look at himself and say, oh yes, I've signed so many deals in support of Saudi Arabia, but I know full well that they've done this. Uh, are they actually going to take me serious at that point? Do they think that I'm – I think at that stage they may actually say, okay, either even in this approach, they're going to say this is just a naive person writing to us about peace. They don't understand why our relationship with Saudi Arabia is so complex. So as rational as I get to them, I feel that they – that still won't actually affect any change because they will always have some higher rationale that they pull – that they justify their actions in being close with Saudi Arabia. Or, on the other hand, you also mentioned Iran earlier, and I'm quite sure, at least in the research that I've done, that Iran hasn't sponsored any terrorism oh, they that have. we know of. No, they're one of the... Saudi Arabia and Iran are definitely... like We, we have the evidence of 
this. It's, it's in the 9-11 Commission report, but it's in so many other places where we know Iran is supporting um, with arms, with the moral support, and with finances to, um, I mean, they're one of the, what is it, one of the biggest backers of the opposition in, in Syria. Like the, uh, Maybe what I was uh, hearing and where I'm getting confused is on the, the nuclear issue, where Iran has not been pushing for nuclear weapon-grade nuclear materials, and they've been passing all of those checks and inspections, but we continue to say that we need to disarm them in terms of their nuclear capabilities and prevent them from going forth with nuclear development. Well, how does that um, follow from financing jihad? That's what we were talking about. Sure, sure. All right. So, I, so go ahead. Okay. Um, so, I, I mean, your rational approach, I know what you're saying, but at the same time, I think there is always a rationale that they pull from those in power to justify their actions, that no matter what I bring to them and say, oh, is it rational to have such close relationships with Saudi Arabia while they're funding us or funding our enemies, they're going to say, well, the ration, rationale for that is X, Y, Z. And according to our overall plan for how to maintain control of that region, we need a strong partner like them in place, even if it leads to potential negative side effects. We need a strong partner like on its own. We need a strong partner like Iran? Saudi Arabia. Like Saudi Arabia? Why do you think they're a strong partner in war? I don't understand that. I think the rationale, not me, I think the rationale that they the US keeps relationships with Saudi Arabia is why they justify those relationships even in the face of known evidence for Saudi Arabia supporting terrorist activities that we can still be on friendly terms with that country. Okay. Yeah, I do think they probably have some kind of rationale. I, I think they know what's going on. I don't know exactly why. You know, I, I assume there's something where they're trying to support certain people within the uh, Saudi royal family, and they, that will hopefully keep at bay some of these terrorist elements. And mm-hmm. that's why they're supporting them. So, yeah, if that's what you're saying, that I assume that's true that they believe that to some degree. Um, and they definitely don't see them as an enemy. Um, and now the, but the broader question is always, how do you assess this type of situation toward a certain end? So in your prior, you know, your, your question before this, you were talking about how do you achieve the peace and, you know, what should you include in the poem? I'm not against poetry to try to persuade people. And I'm not against your campaign to try to you know, persuade people. I think that's fine. What I'm trying to say is that you need to have an actual, you know, uh, reality oriented view of how to achieve peace that doesn't, you know, just say, well, if we, you know, pull out of these places, everything's going to be hunky dory, right? Like there has to be. So in the Saudi Arabia example, that's specific. Like to say to just say the word peace and hold hands and say la di da di da isn't that's not specific at all because at least with the Saudi Arabia thing you can influence um, foreign policy you can try to persuade the person that here's the the evidence that they're an enemy here's the the things that are going on but if you say just peace that's the straw man I was talking about that you're assuming that Trump and everybody doesn't want peace now maybe at at his core he doesn't I I don't want to speak for the psychology of that man but. For many people, many generals, their argument is we want peace. So if you go around saying, I want peace, and they say, yeah, me too, 
You're not persuading anybody. The question is, how do you achieve that peace? That's the important question. Well, I want to end then with just two thoughts here for that, is that one quote that I really think is relevant for what I've been discussing so far comes from uh, General Stanley McChrystal. He talked about insurgent math, that for uh, basically for every one innocent person that we kill as um, cost of war, casualty of war, innocent casualty of war, for every one innocent that dies, 10 new enemies are created. So I think that regardless of what the generals may say about their mission for peace, regardless of what the politicians may want at their core, as long as we are at war, where innocents potentially are caught in the line of fire, then there will continue to not be peace. On the other hand, having just returned from Japan in Nagasaki, where I went to Peace Park, and I saw the fallout um, of the atomic bomb there, and how that city has rebuilt, and how that community has really rallied around a cause of peace, which Japan now, as everyone knows, is a very strong ally of the U.S. So in, in the way that that country has rebuilt... I like to look at that and think, okay, maybe the rational approach then is to reverse General McChrystal's logic and say, for every one innocent that was helped in another country, in the Middle East, in the in African regions where we're trying to expand our military presence, what if we were expanding our NGO presence or just volunteer organizations there, for every one innocent person that was helped, we might make 10 friends of the U.S., 10 people for peace, 10 advocates for cooperation. Well, I mean, by your logic, though, if you look at a war like World War II or Nagasaki, if you, we take McChrystal's premise, then we should have a lot more enemies because we killed a lot of people in Japan. So that's, and we killed a lot of innocents. So that's like that logic is completely obliterated by history. Uh, Stanley McChrystal's words, not mine. <laughs> I know, but Stanley McChrystal's wrong. That one civilian doesn't lead to 10 jihadists. That's not true. Just like one um, death, dead Jap- Japanese uh, civilian in World War II did not lead to 10 more. It eventually you know, led to zero more, and now we have none. So that's the question. How did we get there? Because it would not, like, my argument is it would not have happened if we did not drop those bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It would not... You know, there's a reason we dropped two. Like, we had to drop another one because they wouldn't stop fighting and throwing children with sticks at our soldiers to try to kill them. Like, so that that's just... That's there, there's actually about. been some research and a report was done that said it, there were plenty of metrics showing that Japan was quite ready to surrender. And it would have happened probably within that year, I think, is what I saw when I was at the Peace Park. And there may be propaganda now, and it's, of course, much easier to say in hindsight... But I think there should be a lesson taken from that is that, okay, there is good course for hesitation before such an act is is uh, taken. Um, well, this is a much longer conversation. I, yeah, you know, we don't course. agree. <laughs> I, I think that's completely, you know, neglecting of things like the 900,000 American POWs there that had to stay there another year. You know, that that's just, that's, it's just not... It, it, the purpose of war should be to end it as quickly as possible. 
And part of, so this will be the final thing. I know you got to go. This will be the final thing I'll say. You know, the, the part of the problem in the Middle East or any of these places is, you know, we've been at, at, in Afghanistan for years and years and years. Like, what is it? Thir- 14, 16. 16 years now. Longest war ever in American history. That's crazy. And I agree with that problem. And if you think of it even from just a numbers game, like, you know, let's, you know, it's very hard and civilians dying on either side is always terrible. I, I definitely don't want anybody to die. But if you take it just from a numbers game, that if we would have had done a decisive victory at the beginning, we would have ended the war harshly, then mm-hmm. all the million, you know, how many ever civilians have died since then would not have happened. Just like with, you know, because um, mm-hmm. if we would have continued the war and with Japan, more civilians would have died because more civilians were dying, you know, than uh, in, in our normal air raids and our normal battles and more Americans would die. Then mm-hmm. we're, we're needed. So that's, that's you know, I, I, think I take the counter to what McChrystal, the great General McChrystal, said. <laughs> He's the greatest general mm-hmm. we've ever had, right? So anyway, I want peace. Sean wants peace. Write your congressman, but know what peace is and how to achieve it. That's what I'll say. I'll finish it. I'll let you have the final pithy remark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll just second what you said, brother. We all want peace. Let's work for it. All right.